We want to start off our episode today with a giant, a huge congratulations to Louise Simonson for her 2020 Eisner Hall of Fame induction. I have two things to say about that. The first, if anybody deserves it, it is Louise Simonson. And second, about time. Congratulations, Wheezy. Great job. And like Jeff said, it's about time. The Covenant House Nine Line. one 800 999-9999. For runaways who want to get off the streets but can't go home again. For kids who can't seem to get through to their parents anymore. For parents who need someone at 2 a.m. when they're having trouble with their teenagers. Nine Line, the new national hotline, helps troubled kids 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Welcome, dear listener, to our podcast, Jeff and Rick present Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, where we journey through each issue of the most underrated Marvel series in the 80s while drinking beer, analyzing awesome and amazing adolescent adventures, and absorbing alcohol. I am Jeff. I am Rick. And I am Cullen. Do you know what happens to random banter when it's struck by lightning? The same thing that happens to everything else. Random banter time, my friends! Talk to me! Tell me tales! Stories! Fun adventures! Exciting times! Talk, talk, talk! I know what movie that's from, I know who said it, and I know who they said it to you. Oh, yeah? That is from the first X-Men movie, and that would be Storm talking to Toad. Yes, that is very correct. (laughs) Now, why would I do a random banter intro that has Storm in it? Because we are covering... Toadland. That's no, right. That's not right. That's not right. That's not right. That's not Wait, right. Wait, no, 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 no. That's no, not no, right that's at all. Right. We are covering Shelter from the Toad. That's, that's what we're covering. Right. Wait, oh, no, no, no. Close. Shelter from the storm. Riders that's on the right. storm. <laughs> we are covering the issue called Shelter from the Storm. Now, I haven't read it, so I'm just gonna kind of go into it cold. But I'm assuming this is where like Storm from the X Men goes a little crazy, and like Cloak and Dagger and Power Pack have to like team up to like bring her back off the edge. Is that right? You know, at the moment, that's sounding like a pretty darn good book. Maybe, <laughs> maybe even a better book. Maybe, maybe even a better book. <laughs> But I think we are bearing the lead here, Jeff. I think that people are wondering who that other voice is on our recording. And I think that's an excellent question. And I would like to introduce that voice right now. Coming all the way from Kansas City. Uh, No, I take that back. This is the Portland part of that triad who's actually in Oregon. But coming all the way from the worst comic podcast ever is none other than Colin Stapleton, Hero Initiative Ambassador, all-around good friend, staple of the Portland comic book community. How are you doing, Colin? I'm doing great. It's good to see both of you. It's good to finally meet you, Jeff. It's good to meet you too, Colin. Yeah, this is really great. Uh, I'm really a fan of your show and uh, just love you lifting up uh, a book like Power Pack, and it's just an honor to be here. Speaking of which, what is your history with the pack? I know very little about the pack, embarrassingly so, uh, so much so that when you and I talked about getting together to do an episode um, of your podcast, you suggest you just were very, uh, you know, kind and you said, just go out and pick any story, any story that you'd like to pick. 
Mm-hmm. And we, we would love to have mm-hmm. you on to talk about that. And so I know so little about Power Pack that I picked a graphic novel that I thought was going to be amazing, still was a great read and provides me an opportunity to sit with you two today. But this might not have been indicative of the greatness and the lightheartedness uh, <laughs> that Power Pack tries to represent. Yeah, and and we're probably going to get into this a little bit later on when we talk about the book itself and the creators and possibly some of the history. Yeah, this was a very interesting choice you made. And and I should point out right away that the, that this is a book out of time. This was written probably or it was probably started to be written somewhere back in 1986, but it didn't actually get produced until 1989, after which, you know, Power Pack had changed drastically. The kids' powers had gone around differently. So it, it's a bit out of place and out of time. And now it's my fault for putting it here now. We should have had you on a long time ago. I know that when you first asked me, like, oh, I want to do this book. I said, great, we'll schedule you. Uh, that'll be in about another <laughs> year and a half. And you thought I was kidding, and I wasn't. Actually, I should have probably just said, no, we're going to do this right now because I, I missed the time frame for it. You chose an interesting book, and I hope that with our podcast, you have been able to enjoy a little bit more of Power Pack than you have in the past. Oh, absolutely. The thing that really drew me to the book without knowing anything about the story um, was the the guests of Cloak and Dagger. Mm-hmm. The, those were during the early 80s. That was one of my very favorite miniseries that came out. I really loved just the characterization and the aesthetic and just really felt like that it was, for me, an introduction to the street level uh, side of the Marvel Universe. As much yeah. as I loved Spider-Man and really I lived within the uh, Marvel team-up sort of universe of so the one-and-done sh- stories and things like that, Cloak and Dagger really, for me, they were the ones that introduced me a lot to the adjacent dark side of, of the city side of the Marvel Universe. So anyway, I loved them. And then uh, also uh, just the... Uh, the picture on the cover, and we'll talk more about it, but uh, the protagonist actually, uh, excuse me, the antagonist of the story actually looks like a derivative of Mojo from the Longshot miniseries, uh, which again, I was a big fan of. So I legitimately bought this story on the power of the cover, but as we'll discuss, seemingly a different book inside. Yeah, um, you kind of got fooled a little bit there, my friend. You kind of got sold a bill of goods, but that's okay. That's okay because while he is not <laughs> you mojo, <got> mojoed, <laughs> I dig it, mojoed. While you dig it, mojoed, and he's not mojo, I think we still have an interesting character. But all that fun stuff out of the way, let's get on to some more fun stuff. But the only way we can do that, the only way, is if Jeff gives us the two cents replay from last episode. Kitty falls into a pocket and goes on a fantastical adventure in the land of elsewhere, which is where their clothes and costumes go to when they costume on and off. There, she makes a friend named Bosco, and together they leave a trail of rainbow ribbon candy in their wake to get to see the Grand Poobah in an attempt to get Katie sent back home in this allegorical mishmash of Alice in Wonderland, The Wizard of Oz, and a handful of cartoons from the 1940s. Now that the... The rest of the family was left back at home where they wore ill-fitting clothes until Katie came back and taught them how to make them fit. Two-sentence replay is over. Why don't you give me a beer and tell us what our Power Pack pick is? My pleasure, my friend. 
Gentlemen, because both of you live in Portland, Oregon, I was able to get you both a beer for this episode, so please reach into that paper bag and see what you got. Let's see. Ooh. Oh, yeah, super that cool. That is super cool. Oh, man, that is really neat. I love the way that can looks. That's like a, a giant mountain-sized Sasquatch made out of purple lightning and clouds. Yeah, uh, it's by, very cool. Yeah, it's by Stormbreaker. And this is mm-hmm. o- Opacus Oatmeal Stout? Yes. This is, we, we've had stuff from Stormbreaker Brewing before, and mm-hmm. we've liked it. Um, and this is a 5.0 ABV, 24 IBU, oatmeal stout. The infiltrating aromas of cocoa, deep roast, and caramel are followed by swarming flavors of toffee, dark chocolate, and coffee. As dark and rich as the thick cloud formation for which it is named, this creamy, full-bodied oatmeal stout makes the perfect beer to help you survive those ominous cloudy days, which we kind of have here. Yes, it's It's been been rainy today. today. Yeah, so before I ask, you know, how this beer fits in, let me just go ahead and say that Opacus is the Latin opacus, meaning shady, used to describe a variety of extensive clouds that obscure the sun or moon. The term is used to describe stratus, stratocumulus, alostratus, and altocumulus. See also cloud uh, classifications. I really should have practiced all of those words before I said them, but eh, here we are. So can anybody just guess anything, anything about this can or about what it's called that could possibly possibly fit in with the book that we're talking about Ooh, well i will take the most easy one uh, which is just the namesake ties in with our shelter from the storm story that we're going to discuss today you mean that the the, the storm breaker brewing the storm breaker brewery i yeah, can totally I, see I, that i think i can so. also I see so. uh there's a big uh purple guy on the can yep. as well and that yep. can be indicative of the big purple villain that they fight in there. And also the fact that it's a, if you're doing it as a single comic, this is like three comics jammed into one. So it is, you know, kind of a trade paperback. <laughs> so that giant Sasquatch represents the issue pretty well. <laughs> and there's a lot of people it. in here that are, that are, that are very opacous or very much uh, shady. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of shady nice. fellows in this. We have a, a strong stout and welcome a stout instead of an IPA. Huzzah. I don't know what to do. <laughs> that is opaque. That is opaque. This is the way I like a stout. This mm. is like looking into the deep, dark depths of Coke's cloak. This um, is nice. <laughs> I can smell that dark chocolate and coffee. Yeah. Very smoky. Mm-hmm. Well, it just smells like a nice stout. It, it just... That is just a good, good stout. Yeah, that's, <laughs> no, a, that's, that's, that's an oatmeal good. stout that tastes really nice. Okay. It's it's definitely got the burnt. I, I'm getting a little bit of the burnt flavor in there. Yeah, and after the, that, after that the initial pour toffee. over. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, a, that's a coffee and toffee and the dark chocolate. Yeah, it, it does have that, that roast flavor going on. It definitely has a full bodied feeling. This is a thick beer. You can almost cut this with a knife. I like my stouts that way. It's wonderful. Uh, So I'm a big fan of this. It's definitely uh, got a a forefront coffee taste to it, which reminds me of a a brew that I used to have back in 
Kansas City, made by Boulevard Brewery, uh, called Bully Porter. It's a uh, it's a wonderful stout. Uh, it's thick. I love beers and 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 dark stouts like this. Sometimes when you get a stout, it can get bitter on the back end. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I really like about this is is that uh, the coffee notes definitely override that. Uh, there's no and it's it kind of has a little bit of a, a burnt coffee mm-hmm. but it doesn't get into the bitter realm i'm not it no. doesn't work the sides of my tongue so um i really enjoy it uh definitely a, a thirst quencher not something that i would drink right after mowing the yard but uh definitely <laughs> uh something good to sit around a table with friends and, and talk with but yeah it really does it has that oaty kind of flavor at the front end and then it really does go into that kind of burnt kind of roasted coffee toffee everything just they roasted it all You know, if nothing else for tonight, we have good company and we have a good tasting beer. I think that this is going to rank very well for us tonight. I think so. my opinion. I bet you're right. We'll see. Like we always say, we'll see how we feel in an hour. Or in this case, a couple of hours because this is a long (laughs) issue. (laughs) But let's get started with the comic. The opening credits, if you please, Jeff. Power Pack and Cloak and Dagger. 1989. Shelter from the Storm. Credits. Writer. Bill Mantlow. Pencil, Sal Valuto. Inker, Mark Farmer. Letterer, Jim Massara. Colorist, Julie Michael. Editor, Carl Potts. Assistant Editor, Marcus McLaurin. Editor-in-Chief, Tom DeFalco. Featuring Power Pack, Alex Power, a.k.a. G. Yes, we are back in time when Alex had the gravity power. Julie Power, a.k.a. Lightspeed. She's got the flight power. Jack Power, a.k.a. Mass Master. <laughs> Density Power. Katie Power, a.k.a. Energizer. Energy Power. Guest starring Cloak and Dagger. Both runaways, Cloak has power over a dark, shadowy dimension that pulls fears from those that go inside, while Dagger has the ability to throw daggers of pure light. Now, we should start out by saying that this is not going to be a happy or fun-filled romp through the tights and fights world. This will be a story that deals with domestic violence, runaways, and some really disturbing scenes. We know that part of the reason that people listen to us is that we make jokes, are upbeat, and generally try and brighten people's days. And we're going to try to keep it as happy and as light as we can. But we have a really fine thread that we have to weave, which is why we brought in Colin as a comedy expert. Jeff, have you ever listened to the show? I mean, we call it the worst comic podcast ever for a reason. Well, uh, of course I have. <laughs> not, <clears throat> not, not, no, no, I have not. Well, uh, shoot, this is going to get awkward pretty quickly. Yeah, speaking of awkward, let's start off this issue by looking in on a small rural house, a family of three. Marjorie, an 18-year-old girl, is having a major fight with her two parents. She has just discovered that her parents have hidden letters of acceptance from Princeton, Columbia, and Yale. Acceptances that came with full scholarships. I don't mean to brag, you guys, but I too have been accepted to multiple prestigious podcasts, but I decided to grace your show instead. Aww. I think that the reason that you probably accepted our invitation, though, was because you lost all the other offer letters and could only find ours. 
Anyway, 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 Marjorie is really upset, and with good reason. Her parents explain that she is naive and innocent, and they are protecting her, suggesting she should just go on to community college nearby, get married, and have them babies. When she gets upset by this, they inform her of all the other things that they have done to keep her from the real world. Things like an all-paid trip to Europe with her friends, numerous dates, some publisher clearinghouse offers, the whole Columbia tapes racket, and a subscription to Highlights magazine. Nobody is going to hurt their little girl who is so innocent and naive and unworldly. This is the final straw. She has had no life experiences because they haven't let her have a chance to have any. Her parents' claustrophobic overprotectiveness has pushed their daughter over the edge. She screams that she hates them and runs upstairs and packs a bag. As she sneaks out, she overhears her parents justifying their actions by saying that their daughter cannot live without them and that she needs to learn that. The pretty blonde girl takes off into the night, running through the sleepy little town of russet corners that she has really come to hate. She is so angry and focused on leaving that she does not pay attention to the action in one of the houses she runs by. Unfortunately, due to following the narrative plot, we need to. The house is inhabited by a Hispanic family of five, the parents, a teenage son, and two smaller children. What? And that sound is not a happy one. The inebriated father has just backhanded his teenage son because he called him a violent drunk. Which is what he is. The son, Juan, was trying to protect his mother and younger siblings, and when the mother calls out her husband on this, he turns his anger back towards her. Suck. Juan is not going to let that happen, and slams his father, who in turn hits his head on a dining table. Thud. The family freezes, the father is not responsive, and they all think the worst. But when the drunken angry man starts to stir, the mother tells her son to run. She's afraid of what is going to happen next. She promises she will call the police, but she knows that the father will still take his anger out on Juan. With no preparation, the young man runs out of the house and towards the town's bus depot and on a collision course with wackiness. Okay, guys, I don't think that's really going to work here. Well, come on, it's called artistic license. We want to keep the listeners hopeful. If we say that he is on a collision course with the harsh reality of the predatory people in a big city that does not care one whit at all about him and the nightmares he can't imagine, you know, we might lose the few listeners that we have. But you just uncovered everything that you were trying to bury with your artistic license. The running young man and the running young woman find themselves in the same place full of running buses. And when a passing police car causes them both to stop running and hide in the same place, they begin to talk about why they were running and hiding from the police car. They bond over the fact that they have both run away and decide to share seats on the bus, mostly because they are tired of running. Meanwhile in New York City, home of the not peace picante sauce. Now that was a deep cut. Nice! What's also nice is that we find the power family on display and the giant juxtaposition between the other two families. All six members are sitting around the apartment having some family time and not a punch to be had at all. Julie is reading a newspaper article about foreshadowing while Jim and Katie are reading a book together. Maggie and the two boys are sitting around the table talking about something. She's probably telling them about the birds and the bees. And, as we all know, the birds and the bees are what will attack you if you don't keep your bedroom clean. At least, that's what my mother would tell me when I was growing up. That explains so much about you that I've always wondered about. Personally, that's a topic I want to know nothing about. So let's focus back on the book Jim and Katie are reading. It's Hansel and Gretel, and Katie's finding the story about parents abandoning their children in the woods to be a bit scary. Now hang on a second. 
Okay, this issue probably takes place somewhere around Power Pack 10 or so. At that point in time, Katie has faced aliens, robotic monsters, giant snakes, and vengeful, overweight, angry ex-bosses. An old German folktale should not be scaring her. Well, it is being read by her father, so maybe he's just an effective storyteller. Or maybe Katie is just humoring her old dad. Or maybe aliens, robots, and former employers are nowhere near as scary as the thought of child abandonment. Maggie does agree that it is too scary to read before bed. Julie points out that kids do get abandoned sometimes, as she was just reading about a safe refuge for teenagers in the newspaper. You're always reading, Julie. Someone should abandon you. This gets Jack a rightful telling off from Maggie and a bedtime call for all the kids. As Jim Power is tucking in the littlest power, Katie asks if her parents would ever abandon them. Jim, being a good dad, says never in a million years. Unless the kids reveal that they have powers in the middle of Inferno. What? Forget about it, Cullen. It's Inferno Town. Well, with that comforting thought to put her mind at rest, the littlest power drifts off into a nightmare landscape of the horror show that is her life as a superhero. Can we say major therapy bills in the future? Yes. Yes, we can. For now, she will settle for the cheaper therapy option of running into her parents' room and sleeping with them. Sort of. She's in the bed, but her eyes are wide open as the fears of her nightmares race through her mind. Dude, that was deep. Thank you. The worst comic podcast ever can afford some amazing writers. Meanwhile, back on the streets of the city that never sleeps, our two runaways have arrived at New York's bus authority at 2 a.m., which, as we all know, is the best time to arrive in any new town. These two kids, as sleep-deprived as they are, are now hit with the noise and smell of the reality of where they are. And we're not talking about goofy hijinks with costume folks. No, it is more of the real reality of seeing the homeless on benches and being propositioned for drugs from a crack dealer. Seriously, guys, where's the funny? A nun walks into a bar and says, This isn't my regular habit. Yes, Colin, where is the funny indeed? Well, as you can see, the funny is not really here. Juan does point out that there were drugs in their hometown, but Marjorie just never saw it. You know, because she was being sheltered by her parents for her own good. And, you know, she was white. Right. And if you don't see it, it doesn't exist. Something like that. Now it all exists. The street preacher yelling about the sins around him while they get another proposition from a gentleman in a suit surrounded by ladies wearing very skimpy clothes. Also, there's a veteran who's asking for spare change. The hope for some shelter in the form of a cheap hotel is interrupted by a character of a guy with a tank top, braided pigtails, and sunglasses promising food and safety. This guy seems legit, friendly, and nice. And hey, look! Some of his friends pop around the corner saying that they are the local welcome wagon. Huh, you know what? It's nice to see that Juan and Marjorie ended up somewhere safe. What? This seems so not safe. In fact, it looks like Cloak and Dagger agree with me. They're watching the scene from a nearby roof and they see the kids as being similar to themselves. So similar, in fact, that we get a one-page recap of their origin story. Ah, tale as old as time. A boy, a girl far from home, and tricked into being used as experiments for designer drugs, which turn them into superpowered vigilantes. The Disney musical really just writes itself. The big C and D are not going to let that happen to these kids, and as Juan and Marjorie are pulled into an alleyway, Cloak and Dagger show up in a grand entrance. They do make it a show when they arrive. It may not be the sound of breaking glass, but it is a defiant wrestling entrance. 
Dagger tosses out a couple of her light knives while Cloak pulls the villains into his shadowy domain. The terrors of their nightmares assault these predators, but Pigtail Boy breaks free and in his terror-filled attempt to escape, pistol whips Dagger. Swack! Uh, well, Cloak does not like that, and when Cloak doesn't like things, Cloak gets angry. A lot occurs all at once here. Pigtail Boy runs off and leaves the runaways, the heroes, and the book as far behind him as he possibly can. Bye, Pigtail Boy. We hardly knew you. Bye. Bye. Bye, Pigtail Boy. Cloak goes on a two-page fury-filled freakout. He starts to just dump his psychic attacks into the other bad guys in the alley, completely missing out on everything else that occurs. Juan and Marjorie pick up the bleeding and unconscious dagger and run away from the freaky Cloak. And then to top it all off, an errant car comes flying down this alley and slams into the two bad guys that Cloak had just dumped out of his light-hungry dark abyss. Scree! Which causes Cloak to laugh a demon's laugh at the pain of these two guys. And then he realizes that Dagger is gone. Nice. Way to superhero, bro. Speaking of great choices, our two runaways are continuing to run away while holding up the bleeding girl in the weird white costume. They have no idea where they are going, but they know that they do not want to talk to any police. Instead, they talk to a lady who is both underdressed and overdressed who is hanging out under a street lamp. There are a lot of good choices being made tonight. This lady informs the two youths that there is a place nearby that they can go called Safe Refuge. As they approach, a security guard comes out and calls for a doctor on a radio. Well, that's a good thing. Cloak, meanwhile, is scared, angry, and confused. He has lost Dagger and cannot find her no matter how hard he looks and how many crimes he ignores. Way to go, buddy. You literally had one life goal. Protect Dagger, and you just failed. I don't know if kicking Cloak while he's down is going to help anybody right now. Good thing that Cloak has better friends than you. In fact, he starts to think of who he knows and trusts to help him and makes a decision. After deciding that the priest friend they have is currently insane, that he has no way to find Spider-Man, and that the New Mutants are all the way over in Westminster, he remembers that he is in a graphic novel with Power Pack, and decides that a team of literal children is just who he needs to talk to in the middle of the night. Good choices still abounding. Back at the safe refuge, the two kids are sitting down while Dagger is getting treated for a head wound and a high fever. After the nurse helps Dagger out of her revealing costume and into a different, but equally revealing bathrobe, they find out that she seems to have amnesia. That old cliche storytelling chestnut. Well, no one knows who Dagger is, and they all just decide that they're not going to worry about it tonight. The runaway kids are offered shelter for the night and are told that they are welcome to leave when they want. The shelter is required to report the amnesia girl's injuries to the police, though, but that can wait till tomorrow morning. They leave Dagger in a room where she falls asleep and dreams of dancing in light, exactly how I fall asleep every night. With a head wound and possible brain damage? Hey, you deal with insomnia your way, I'll deal with it mine. The two runaways have been given some food and are feeling better. Marjorie is a bit worried and has one number push away from calling her parents. But the thought of her dad giving her an I told you so lecture makes her slam the payphone down on the receiver and do a soap opera-esque run down a hallway. And we, the audience, gets to see them being watched by a bug-eyed undesirable from another room. The next morning, Cloak appears in Katie and Julie's bedroom. Whoa, whoa, whoa hold on. Whoa, whoa, what? Whoa, uh, 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 cool, that bro, ain't cool. No way. Hey, hey, hey. Good choices, remember? And I did not write or draw this, so don't shoot the messenger. The two underage girls are not happy about this very uncomfortable wake-up call either. 
but a sad and angsty cloak lets them know that Dagger is missing. A quick smash cut and power pack are talking about how they are going to help Cloak. Luckily, their parents are still married and the kids still love them, and they need to get them an anniversary present. So, at breakfast, the kids lie to their loving parents, saying that they are all going out to buy a video game. Super Mario 2, bro. I wonder if Cloak is going to be told his princess is in another castle later in this book. Possibly. But the parents think that this is a cover for buying a present for them, but is actually a lie so that they can go superheroing. They head up to the roof, costume on, awkwardly yell their hero names out for whoever might be listening, and take off to find the missing hero while yelling, power pack at the street below. Since it's the next morning, let's check in on our little amnesic angel. The nurse allows Dagger to get up and walk around with her two new friends. Juan and Marjorie have apparently had enough time to familiarize themselves with this safe refuge and quickly walk through all of the amenities. The place is really set up to help those in trouble. It has a cafeteria, laundry, and dorms, as well as a few classrooms and a small nursery for teenage moms. Dagger notices rent-a-cops walking around and is informed that they are not guards, keeping the residents locked in, but they provide security and protection for them. Mostly, they protect the residents from outside pushers, pimps, and criminals. But lately, there have been attacks from another runaway project, the Shelter Society, who steal away residents. While this may sound insane, two charity organizations fighting each other, it does make some sense, I guess. There are limited funds and resources, and the shelters are paid by the head. But as the three teens talk to another resident, it's alluded to that there may be more going on at the Shelter Society than just charity. While Dagger is willing and ready to pull that plot thread, Marjorie distracts her by asking if she really does not know that her name is Dagger. Okay, stop. Hang on. Let's figure this out. Marjorie only knows her name is Dagger because when the crime fighters burst in the alley to save Marjorie and Juan, Dagger yelled out that they were called Cloak and Dagger. Right? Yep, that checks out to my recollection. Then why did Juan and Marjorie run away from Cloak, taking Dagger with them? They were saying that they had to get Dagger away from that demon, the person that Dagger came with, and she was teammates with. In fact, they remind her now that she is teammates with Cloak, and she has superpowers. Why? Hey, Rick, let's just look at this shiny object, not at the gaping plot hole. Quick, Colin, move on with the story before he figures out my clever ruse. Nice distraction. Not unlike what is occurring in the book with a now-confused Dagger being led away while a janitor overhears the conversation. A janitor who is the same bug-eyed man that was watching them the previous night. But there are no janitors here. Just foreshadowing. I'm sorry, I seem to have been successfully distracted by something. What's happening? Cloak and Power Pack are having a smoke break from looking for Dagger. You know, the lost Lady of Light. Wait, that should read that Cloak and Power Pack are taking a break behind a giant billboard showing a man puffing out actual smoke rings. <laughs> man, advertising in the 80s was strange. The kids have checked everywhere and seen some ugly things. Cloak, whose power is kept at bay by Dagger's light, is starting to feel hungry and the kids are bickering. Luckily, Julie remembers the article she read about Safe Refuge and how Dagger was with two runaway kids. The kids don't want to just appear inside the shelter, scaring people. Well, Jack does, but he's talked out of it. Instead, they decide to go in using their civilian identities. Jack comes up with a good idea that they should go in, saying they're working on a school report, while Cloak stays outside to observe. Inside, things are getting pretty tense. Dagger and the two teens are confronted by the suspicious bug-eyed janitor who starts to weave a conspiracy theory that they will all be in trouble if they stay here. He knows a better place. 
A place that's fun. Nobody's really buying this guy's crazy tale, but he's really just a distraction for his other two friends. As a fight ensues, Dagger and her poor abused head meet the dull business end of a bottle from the janitor. Fuck. All three kids are quickly subdued and hauled into a nearby van. Way to go, security! To be fair, the security may have stopped this if they were not up in the front dealing with the four nosy kids trying to gain access to the building. The great idea of getting in to write a paper for school is just not going to fly without prior notice and the approval from the residents. Way to go, Jack. That was a horrible idea. But you just said it was a good idea. I am capricious and my affection is fleeting. Now read your lines. Okay, up front. The kids do see the police showing up to interview the injured woman who came in the previous night. And at the same time, a resident comes outside to tell everyone that a kidnapping just occurred of the three new people that came in last night. Now don't be confused and think that I am talking about the band when I say that we have a panic at the disco on our hands now. Power Pack runs inside with everyone else and starts to sneak around. Julie overhears someone talking about the Shelter Society and Katie finds Dagger's costume, confirming that she was here and was probably one of the people kidnapped. They somehow sneak back out and meet up with Cloak, who is really losing it. He admits how his dark shadow power is kept at bay with Dagger's light and that without it, he's losing control. Like Galactus, his hunger is all-consuming. I don't understand, Mr. Cloak. But if you need light, you can eat a little bit of mine. Then, when you're done, we'll all look for Dagger again, okay? Aw, how sweet. And how really creepy as well. Speaking of creepy, while the kids decide to try and look into the Shelter Society place they heard about via the Yellow Pages, which is a thing that people used to use to look up addresses before Google became a thing, we see the kidnapper's kidnap van pulling into that alliterative place's warehouse. You know, guys, I may be way out here on a limb, but I think these guys are bad. And not just because they drive unmarked vans into seedy warehouses, but because they're isolating their three new acquisitions in different places according to their master's wishes. I don't know. I'm holding out hope that they are just really misunderstood. Maybe they're just excited to show their new guests their luxury suites. Agree to disagree. Interesting. Interesting. I think that the only way we can really check out their motives is to look in on our troubled and terrified transient teens, starting with Marjorie, who as soon as she is thrown in her cell begins to call out for her mommy and daddy, and imagines them saying, I told you so, to her. The treatment of Juan seems to be supporting my thesis. Three guys are using the abused teen as a punching bag, both physically and mentally. Somehow, they know that Juan has been physically abused by his drunk father and torment him with this information during the beatdown. So I'm guessing they're psychic as well? I still think that they're misunderstood. Look, let's check on Dagger. She is put in a wonderfully large room, which befits her status as a well-respected hero in the Marvel Universe. They also have a friend for her to meet, who, like Barney the Friendly Dinosaur, is a large purple... Uh, thing. And he seems friendly. Just listen. I am your shepherd, my lost little sheep. I will lead you not into temptation, but deliver you from evil. I am your resurrection and hope, the light in your darkness. I am Cadaver. See? Friendly. What are you talking about? It's a grotesque, obese, purple thing that has bits of machinery attached to him with yellow fluid-filled tubing. And his name's Cadaver. You know, you both are making strong arguments, but I'm thinking that Colin may be onto something. For one thing, things with Dagger seem to be hitting a major creepy factor. She still has a head wound, amnesia, and is burning up with fever, as her power levels haven't been moderated by Cloak's soothing darkness, and the cadaver thing seems to be 
hauling her in like a zombie. She walks towards the purple people eater. The next scenes are incredibly creepy. Dagger kneels before the creature, allows it to touch her face, and then his needle fingernails jab into her arm and she reacts as Cadaver starts to feed off of her. At first, the feeding is pleasurable and reminds Dagger of when Cloak would feed on her light. But Cadaver is not Cloak, and he insatiably draws more and more light and life out of her. Way uncomfortable, kind of like Juan's feelings about being punched. He finally strikes back, punching one of his captors. Suck! That may have been a jarring scene cut, but Juan found it distracting enough to run away from his kidnappers. And as they try to follow, they run right into Cloak and Power Pack. Question... How did they find this place? I mean, they just appeared here. No time for questions like that now. Power Pack attacks. Settle in for double bill, creeps. This show features Cloak and Power Pack. We want Dagger and we want her now. Yeah, what she said. These guys don't seem to get it, Mass Master. Then let's tutor him, Lightspeed. And with that lame entrance, the kids and Cloak attack. The culmination of the attack comes as Cloak pulls the bad dudes into a shadowy realm to suffer their own personal perdition, and he learns about the orchestrator of their pain and suffering, Cadaver. Cloak has figured out that these guys serve a creature that feeds off of lifelight, and if he has Dagger who is a feast of lifelight, well that's just not good. Meanwhile, Juan has figured out where Marjorie is and has freed her. At the same time, the cops have also descended on the warehouse and are starting to round up all of the occupants so that they can investigate the kidnapping. But everyone they encounter says that no one is here against their will. In fact, they're all happy to be there to serve the master and to be fed by him, just as they are fed on him in kind. The police can see how sick and emaciated they all are and begin to imagine the horror show that must lie within the warehouse walls. <sighs> I really don't want to read this section. Hey, it's your show. I'm just a guest and you really can't make me read that. And I don't want to. <sighs> well, <clears throat> we're back with Cadaver and we find out his backstory, told by him while hovering over Dagger's body and feeding. He was really sick, got an experimental drug treatment, which triggered a side effect that gave him the ability to drain off the life energy of people using an IV hooked up to his arm. He set the shelter up to bring people to him. He had quantity, but Dagger provides him quality. He thinks that draining her completely might not only sustain him, but cure his disease entirely. Oh, and the way that Dagger is drawn is gross. Zracked. Great balls of fire. The heroes burst into Cadaver's lair and begin their attack on the end boss. Cadaver seems to have developed light knives like Dagger, but not finding that to be enough, he throws Dagger at Katie and Julie while hurling a light dagger into her back. Katie and Julie check out their abused friend and she does not look good, which causes Cloak to go into a big old rage. Prepare to meet your maker, Cadaver. You have had your last supper. The girl's light knives have no effect on you? Wrong, monster. I eat them, as I am going to devour you. I am a little upset by Cloak's actions. He engulfs Cadaver into his shadowy cloak, and the villain begins to be chased by his victims. Cloak, meanwhile, is pleased that Cadaver is suffering and is looking forward to feeding off the light that the villain stole from Dagger. Ah, Cadaver's light becomes mine, and deprived of it, he will die. But would that make me a murderer? No better than he? No, 
Although our hunger is similar, Cadaver steals light from others simply for sustenance. I drink light to ease daggers in her fires or to punish the evildoers. At least, that is what I must go on telling myself if I am to live with the horror that is... Cloak! So, Cloak is going to entrap him forever and feed off him. Kind of like the Dexter version of this kidnapper. Okay, cool, cool. Actually, it's not cool, and a freshly restored and redressed Dagger agrees with me. Wait, how? When? What? What's going on? Why did Dagger change clothes? Well, she felt very uncomfortable and inappropriate wearing the world's shortest robe for more than a full day. It was too revealing. What? What did I say? Thanks to Cloak absorbing the light out of Cadaver, Dagger has her power, strength, and memories back, apparently. This is invoking some seriously broken gaming logic here. Still, Dagger asks Cloak to release the big bad, and he does. But the now not-so-big mean purple people eater is looking a lot worse for wear. His stolen life force is drained, and he looks to be about ready to die. Which is fine by Cloak. Die and be done with you. See? Dagger, being the kind one, spares some of her light to keep Cadaver alive. Power Pack is having a hard time seeing this. I mean, the dude just tried to... Let's just go ahead and say, kill her in the most uncomfortable way possible. But Dagger believes it was the disease, not the man, that is responsible for his terrible actions. That is all well and good, but Jack brings up the important point that everyone should be thinking about. How are we going to explain to Mom and Dad where we've been all day when we return home without an anniversary gift? Way to keep your eye on the prize there, Jack. Oh, it gets better. Dagger pulls off the gem that she says used to be the focus for how Cadaver channeled his power and fed light to his diseased, ravaged cells. Seeing how it is useless to Cadaver now, Dagger fills it with her light, because it can still store her living light for some reason. She hands it to Katie, providing an instant one-of-a-kind present that will cause absolutely no questions to be asked by her parents, ever. Leaving aside the big how regarding Dagger's knowledge base for any of that, the kids now have a pretty gem that was a focus for a villain's power set. A villain that kidnapped and abused children. A villain that drained them of their free will, fed on their lifelight, and set them out into the world to provide more victims for them. Wow. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. That is one great gift. Katie likes it. I love you, Dagger. See? But she's five. And she has no concept for what just happened. Whatever. The kids see the end of the issue coming, so they take off. As do Cloak and Dagger. The cops bust into the now mostly vacant room and pick up the wreck that is what's left of Cadaver. The two teenage runaways are still running from the nightmare factory that they just escaped from, but they slow down enough to talk. They've decided that after the most improbable and insane things they have seen since, um, yesterday? Maybe they should go home and face the music. Yeah, Juan says he thinks he can stand up to his father's abuse, and Marjorie is pretty sure she can stand up to her parents. Especially if they stay together. So, with the two runaways deciding to return home, hand in hand, we end with a statement about a community being a family, and Cloak and Dagger watching over the city. The end. And now it's time for the Power Pack Packaging Time! Yeah, Jeff's got to put up with that, and now so do you, so, you know. Okay, deal that's with right. Deal with yeah. Put up with it, Sprite. Nah, that's great. It shows that you're excited and energetic I'm, about the material we covered. I'm totally excited about this issue. Yes, nobody is are. going to nobody is going to rain on my parade in your storm that you're sheltering from. Yeah. 
I can just stretch that out as far as it'll go till it breaks. All right. So we have a cover here that was drawn by the uh, artist of the book, Sal Valetto, and uh, colored by Julie Michael. It is very representative of one of the scenes of the book. Well, let's describe it first. Uh, which of you fine gentlemen want to describe this lovely, lovely cover? Uh, I can go ahead and take a crack at that. Yes, um, I was going to say, I cede my time to Cullen. I appreciate that, sir. Uh, yeah, so this is a, a dynamic cover. Uh, it, I think, suffers a little bit from the inclusiveness of all of the trade dress because they include not only uh, Power Pack, but also Cloak and Dagger. Unfortunately, like much of the title at the bottom of the, the cover is lost. Just the, I believe the, the selection of red for the text, hardly ever, it doesn't really pop from the, the page. But if you take that away and just take an opportunity to look at the art, I really, again, uh, found myself uh, captivated and captured by the action on the, on, on the cover. It has in the near foreground, it has dagger, uh, obviously unconscious on the floor and Katie attending to her cloak, grabbing a couple uh, of the other teammates and pulling them away and Mojo holding this uh, energy sphere with his right arm drawn back like he's about to drop the killing blow on Dagger. And I, I think there's a, a lot of interesting colors here. Like I said, the color palette definitely sets the tone for what you'll find inside the book. Uh, it's not a bright color. I think we, we've talked about how it's almost like this watercolor, heavy pastel. ink, pastel color palette. And uh, it's, it's just very interesting. The aesthetics are interesting to me. Some of the things that they use that look like pastel watercolors are in not only the background, but in some of the components of the foreground composition. So uh, like I said, lots of action. You're definitely, I'm drawn into wondering what the story is about, given this is what we see of the, of this scene. So I, I, I really thought that it was a great cover and uh, yeah. the reason it looked different than other books on the rack, uh, probably then, but for me now, was definitely a big draw. Yeah, it, it definitely promises something exciting, something interesting. We don't know who this character is. Even, you know, especially 30 years down the line, you know, we know most of Marvel Universe got this big old poster behind me here, but this guy don't look familiar. He looks no. reminiscent of Mojo, but at the same time, you know, who is this? Yeah, it's very um, much kind of a one and done. Yeah, he's one and done. But, you know, we don't know this. This is interesting. There's some action going on. Now, the, the book is, a, or the cover is a bit of a lie. I mean, the scene pretty much does happen, but this is not the book. No. I mean, this is a scene in the book. And, I mean, Cadaver, you blink and you miss him a little bit almost yeah. at the end of the book because he is such an afterthought. He's the impetus of what's going on in some sense for part of the story or he, he's not really the focus of the issue actually the two people who are the focus of this entire issue are not on this cover and that is no. Juan and Marjorie right yes it also at the top we also it, it announces that this is Bill Matlow, Sal Valetto, Mark Farmer, and Julie Michael and I think that kind of gets us a little bit into the book before we do I want to start really quickly by talking about the advertisement that we said which is actually at the back of the book and that is the Covenant House nine line. And this is our little cold open that we did at the beginning. And this is kind of interesting because this nine line is still active. There's actually a website for it now called the Teen Line Online Covenant House Nine Line. 
and it's a crisis hotline for youth and parents, shelter referrals, information, crisis intervention, and health clinic, referrals through the U.S., bilingual, it's free, it's confidential. Another part of this book to keep in mind as we're talking about it is that this book was created in partnership to advertise the nine line, to advertise information about runaways and referrals and ways to help them out. It kind of gets a little bit lost, I think, in the message, but I think it's it's nice to go ahead and highlight it here and say that, you know, something that they included in the book back 30 years ago is still something that's active today, and you can still use this number today, and you can still contact them for advice. That all being said, you know, I tried finding as much as I possibly could about the whys, wherefores, and how this issue was made. And I know we talked a little bit about it at the beginning. Definitely was written early, earlier on than its publication date. I would say it was probably written about 86 or 87. About that point in time, I think we should look at the writer here, Bill Matlow. Now, Bill Matlow is an incredible writer. He had a long run on The Incredible Hulk. He had a long run on Alpha Flight. He's known for Micronauts. He's known for ROM. He's the co-creator of Cloak and Dagger. So, I mean, he knows some of the characters in this, and he's got a real good passion for it. He was on his way out of comics around 1987. He had started to go to school to become a paralegal, and he actually started doing a lot more law work about this point in time. So I think that he was on his way out, and I think that some of the writing style and some of the plot really show that. Because if you look at the top line here, the byline, Bill Matlow, Sal Bellotto, Mark Farmer, Julie Michaels, it's a murderer's row of people who are, are great. I mean, this is there's a lot that says this is going to be a great book. But for some reason or another, it doesn't quite hit on all this, on the cylinders. I also want to bring up one other thing about Bill Matlow, because uh, while he is still with us to this day, in 1992, he was a victim of a hit and run accident. And he, he suffered from some inoperable brain damage. And he's been living in a full care facility ever since then. So after a really brilliant run and after being a very brilliant legal mind, he, he suffered something horrible. And it's very sad that he's still out there. But Bill Matlow, you know, he had a great career. I don't know if this is one of his high crowning achievements, though. Sal Valletto, he is not one of our favorite power pack artists, but he is a solid, and he has experience drawing these kids, and he's got a very big history with the franchise. Mark Farmer, longtime inker on Excalibur, and I love the art in that series. And, of course, Carl Potts was the editor of Power Pack. So it is interesting to see all these really great creative people working on a project that then comes out two years late and given a prestige format, and it, I don't know, it doesn't quite work. What do you guys think? What are, What's your kind of feelings on this? Yeah, you know, I think coming at it from kind of a, a newbie perspective, you know, I'm familiar with Bill Mantlo. I believe he also created Rocket Raccoon. And, you know, he, he has a, an amazing bibliography of characters and, and books that he has uh, created and written for Marvel. It's weird to me to think that this team... Uh, or at the very least, Bill wrote this story early on in Power Pack's existence, and then it just got put in a drawer and didn't see the light of day again. I think the published uh, date is 1989. Mm -hmm. So even if it was written, it probably still, you know, took a month and a half to two months for uh, Sal Valuto to do the art. And I just, it, to me, it just seems like you said, like a book out of time. And I think that, uh, you know, I've always been a fan of what amounts to the big twos PSA campaigns for mm -hmm. books against smoking. Uh, Denny O'Neill was um, 
editor for a book called Seduction of the Gun from DC, um, you know, these types of things. And it's clear that this is where Marvel's head was for this particular graphic novel. It's supposed to be able to speak to some specific societal issues. Uh, to me, I, I think it, it, it's so dark yeah, that, uh, it really seems so far out of place, and maybe that's why it got shelved. I don't know, but uh, but it's definitely an interesting side trek for this family and these characters that, um, you know, like you said, just doesn't seem to sync up with where the book was when it came out. And it, and it's also another interesting thing that Power Pack was used in another one of those PSAs early on in their career with Spider-Man, where they did one on child abuse. Now, the Spider-Man half of that comic is almost infamous for how bad it is, but the Power Pack side is really good. And they like this book, they introduce numbers and people you can contact and things you should do in order to, you know, if you find yourself in the situation or you find somebody you know in this situation utilizing the kids to sell the book or, or as a way for people to see themselves in the book and other kids see themselves in the book is one of the things. Jeff? Well, that's one of the things is uh, the story might not be the best, but I think all the characters are written really well. Mm-hmm. And they do really tie into the kind of the issues of like going, you know, it's like Cloak and Dagger, they hit their origin story, they hit their angst, they hit kind of all those things. When they're dealing with them and they don't have amnesia, when they were dealing with Cloak and Dagger as Cloak and Dagger, they hit them really well. When they dealt with uh, Power Pack kind of doing some of their family stuff and everything, they dealt with that really well. They were well written. Doing their superheroing stuff, they kind of did some things, but a lot of it, a lot of Power Pack in this was very kind of stand back and kind of observe. So I thought that the characters were written really well. I kind of agree with you. I Some of the characterization was good. It just seems like they were they were hidden, and it also feels like they didn't quite fit in the story. I can um, see that. I, th- I think I, I think I know what I was wanted to say. It's like uh, everything about this was kind of muted. The coloring yeah. in the book was very muted. The scripture, everything was kind of, you know, it was kind of oppressed. It was kind of muted down. So a lot of the characterizations did get sort of lost, especially for the power kids. There were superheroes in this doing stuff, but it really it was a Juan Marjorie story. Yeah, it, it was. And, and, and their and, uh, interaction with the world around them. And, and at the same time, I kind of feel that they were they were kind of given a disservice with how they were treated in the book on some, mm-hmm. on certain levels as well. Sticking with the superheroes though, I think that the only superhero that was really a superhero in a sense, it might be cloak. We saw a lot of cloak. Yeah. We saw his angst. He's missing dagger. You know, we saw a lot of his characterization come out, whether good, whether bad, whether right or wrong. I don't know. Yeah, Dagger was a MacGuffin, and she was in Amnesiaville, so she's a new character altogether. Yay! And the kids, Power Pack was there, but except for Katie one time saying, well, Cloak can use some of my power if he wants to, I don't know what their purpose totally was there, because there was nothing that, there, there was no secret gate that they unlocked with their powers. There was no situation that mm-hmm. was solved with their power set. I mean, to your point, if you took Power Pack out of this book, that story would still end up working. Yep. And you would never miss them. Yep, so, 100%. Uh, uh, so no. you know, I think there was just that piece where I think they were trying to bring in a different readership or a different group, right? Maybe the Power Pack fans are not the same as the Cloak and Dagger fans. So if we mash this up, we get across. I don't know. I really, <laughs> I don't know what the conversation could have sounded I'm not sure cloak and dagger have been in power packs several times yeah i think they've been in there 
for four to six different issues. Honestly. Well, I mean, it, well, I mean, it, I, Cloak and Dagger fit in this because they are the Marvel representatives, representatives of Runaways. Yeah, they're youthful Runaways, and that's what I think uh, Power Packs fit in there was not the Runaway part, but the youthful. They were trying to make sure. it basically. It was like it's Runaway kids, it's former Runaway kids, it's kids. So it was just that. It's like when you think kids, you could be like, oh well, they could bring in the New Mutants. They're sure. comparable in age. Personally, for me, when I think New Mutants, I'm like, yeah, but they're like late teenagers. They're like tv high schoolers because they're like in their 20s and 30s kind of thing is how i always see them but the power pack pack kids i always see as kids i would almost lean a little bit more towards that the new million kids are the and and i have nothing to back this off and i may be saying something that's completely wrong but my gut feeling was that a majority of the kids that run away are going to be from the you know middle or late teenage years rather than most of the kids. I mean, maybe you get Alex or Julie that are kind of more in that runaway age, but I wouldn't necessarily see a majority of kids who are Katie or Jack's age that would be running away. So I think that the new yeah. mutants would be more in that runaway type of, of of age of that teenage years than Power Pack. Mm-hmm. So just having them as being a kid stand-in, maybe? But once again, I think you can find anybody else to be, or you can find others to be in that stand-in as well. I know that one point in time we were all talking and somebody brought up that possibly the juxtaposition between difficult family life and a good family life that the power pack yeah. family has. And sure, there's not much other, many other families in the Marvel Universe that would really you know fit in that. I mean, sure, they could have gotten mm-hmm. the Fantastic Four, but that's a bad, bad comparison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Horrible comparison. So mm-hmm. I, I, it just, it's very strange how this all works because it's not a, it's not a great power pack story in there, but let's talk. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the kids. The the kids uh, that are the focus of the story, Marjorie and Juan. How much do they fit in with what the story is trying to say? I mean, they they are they're both interesting cases, and they kind of fit as as parallels with Cloak and Dagger a little bit. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah very much de- so. Yeah, they're definitely half-turn analogs from Cloak and Dagger. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that they did a great job of not falling into, from a writing perspective, some stereotypes, which is often, you know, can be an easy write. They kept it as, you know, kind of a 30,000-foot view of families with challenges. And, you know, and you got to hear the father of Marjorie kind of talk about, you know, the motivation for why they did the things that they did. And so you you are given an opportunity to emotionally connect Mm -hmm. to these two characters. You're right. They're like another set of MacGuffins, right? Because at, at the point where they leave their homes, they kind of just become these pinballs that end up being bounced to where the story needs to go. You know, it's, it's good comic writing. It's difficult to see where all of these non cloak and dagger characters are kind of being forced into the mesh, into the batter. With Juan and Marjorie though, if you look at their, they're prominent in the story. Next would be kind of be cloak. But if you look at their storyline, their engagement with everybody is that they saw Cloak once, they then kidnapped Dagger, for want of a better word, to get her away from her, you know, this bad situation with her partner that she came there with. Uh, then they hang out with uh, Dagger in a, a, a very small robe. 
then they get taken away and they you know they don't even deal with cadaver at all they deal with like marjorie is an empty room and juan gets beat up by three guys they then leave they had no interaction with power pack they had hang on the vaguest interaction with with day da- uh, with cloak hang on they hung out with dagger in her non-dagger persona i just realized something um they did just leave at the end and didn't deal with cadaver or cloak so these two people who got kidnapped with a third person who's amnesic and and they get locked into a horrible situation they left their friend okay in their defense when they were at <laughs> uh the shelter society and the person was like oh so what happened to your friend several times they go oh she's not our friend we just met her on the street okay <laughs> Okay. At no point did they call her a friend. She was just somebody around. So this lost kitten who has brain damage, who they brought into a supposedly safe situation and then got kidnapped with, they're like, well, bummer. If you were our friend, we would have cared more. But since you're not our friend, eh, it's an acceptable loss in our eyes. It's an acceptable loss. It's collateral damage. Well, you see, Dagger didn't have the long-running history that Marjorie and Juan had. They had a bus ride, buddy. They had a bus ride. And a walk down uh, through New York, which is their entire they backstory horrible, together. They are horrible, people. I have just decided uh, yeah. that. I have just decided yeah. that Marjorie and Juan are horrible, horrible people, and they're supposed to be us as readers' view into the story. Maybe they're just a product of their environment. Maybe. Okay, okay, they are a product of their environment. We have one guy who comes from an abusive home, so he's just an abusive individual, and we have somebody else whose parents more or less ignore her needs because it's for her own good. So she decided she decided that her her product what she got out of that was that I know that saving her life, Dagger's made some bad choices. So we shouldn't save her life because it's for her own good. <laughs> <laughs> well maybe that's why Marjorie's parents were like, No, you can't go out in the world. You're a monster. Right. Maybe they were right. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's perfect. This is taking a dark turn. Right. Personally for me, I it it looks like Juan comes from a very difficult home. There, there's definitely yes. problems that are there. In fact, it's so bad that I kind of have, I kind of question the book a little bit saying they're just going to go back home. I, I don't know if that's necessarily the right answer. I, I don't know if him going back home is going to put him, his family, or other people in danger. I wonder if there are some other options that could have been explored. Like, you know what, before I go home, I'm going to contact some people. I'm going to work with some people to make sure that if I go back in that situation, there's some safety nets in place, or there's some other people that can help uh, us deal with things that are going on that home, and that I can make sure that my family, the rest of my family is okay, and they're not suffering from me leaving. Maybe the I, nine I, I, I line. Think, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But no, they, instead, they're like, we're just going to go back because, you know, our folks were right. This is scary out here. So we're going to go back and we're going <laughs> to deal with things. Um, for one, I'm thinking, you still got some scary things going on. For Marjorie, I'm like, I don't know if anything out here has has shown that your parents are right. I think it's showing how your parents have been wrong for not preparing you how to deal with things because you dealt with things horribly. 
But I think going back home, that's not going to change. You're going to go back home. And your parents are like, well, see, told you so. The, the intimation of it is at the end of the book is that they say, I think we can go back. I think we can deal with this. You know, we can deal with our problems if we're dealing with it together because they're providing a support network and kind of they're, they're pulling the rock out and shining the light of day onto the uh, situation in the shadows. And it, the more that that gets exposed, it's quite possible that it'll be like, oh, okay, hey, you can have, you can maybe start getting community or uh, care workers or something involved in that where they then are, you know, are fixing a situation. Possibly, possibly. Somebody please answer me how Dagger changed her clothes so fast at the end of the book. Unstable molecules. Yeah, okay. unstable molecules. Also, more unstable molecules is why. Oh, okay. okay. It was, uh, yeah, her, her <laughs> quick change from her uh, revealing robe to stop. I'm going to stop you there, and I want you to go back one step. Uh, her going from unconscious to conscious to quick change out of a revealing bathrobe into her revealing costume. Into her revealing costume, yes. I think, take that away from the uh, literal sense of her costume, you know, of her changing her outfit and put it into a figurative sense. Ah. It was a representation of, you know, her in her uh, short, short robe and, a, you know, and the, the head wrap band saying that she had head, you know, amnesia and head trauma, all that, all that mm -hmm. uh, soap opera trope going into her superhero costume full, you know, her full kit. That was a figurative transformation from going, she is a patient. She is a victim. She is somebody who is amnesia, somebody who needs to be taken care of. And it was just a representation of, she is now back to her old self. She is a hero. She's fully in charge. She knows who she is and what she needs to do. That is a pretty impressive metaphor there because mm -hmm. that metaphor comes with eye makeup and possibly some styling of hair as well. So. Well, yeah, and uh, again, it was uh, it, just see that as a figurative change. Maybe she was still in a in a in a bathrobe the entire time, but you can now see her as oh, she's her fully formed. She's this is her final form kind of thing. So that's one way. Or you could just say uh, it was time for Dagger to be Dagger, so that way her and Cloak could go do Cloak and Dagger stuff again. And they didn't <laughs> want to put in a five minutes later. This is a very long book. There's a lot of pages. There's a lot of content in here. Yeah, it's like 62 and, pages. And they spend a lot of time walking through and doing a good job of walking through some everyday scenes. But then mm -hmm. there's just some weird jump cuts that occur that don't quite fit. And I just, I am wondering once again, what's going on with the plotting of all that? No, it's totally fair. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm looking right now uh, at the panels between the last visible time that Dagger is in her hospital gown, and then it's four, five, six, seven, seven panels or two pages, and she shows up in her outfit. So it's not quite as efficient as a uh, phone booth, but uh, it's pretty great. <laughs> it's pretty great. Yeah. So it's, you know, comics. Yeah, it's comics. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's comics. And, and honestly, you know, the, I think the last time that we saw her, the last panel she was in, it was like she had been drained of her life energy, her life light, thrown at some power kids, and then uh, had a light dagger thrown into her back. And it was like, dagger's dead. Nope. And then two pages later, no, Dagger's fine. Dagger's great. I've Cloak drank the... The purple Kool-Aid. Yeah, the purple Kool-Aid, and now Dagger's fine because, I don't know, that's how medicine works or something. <laughs> All right. I think we have uh, beaten this 
poor little comic book that I think we beat it up enough. And and I, I apologize for that because there is some there is some good stuff that's in there. There is some interesting characterization, uh, solid art. But let's talk about the art. Let's talk a little bit about that art. And I think the only way we can talk about that art is through our power thoughts. Let's talk about Refrigerator Gallery. What piece of art in this book needs to be on the family refrigerator? And we always like to start off with a little bit of comedy, which is hard to find in this little book. But Colin, give us something funny to laugh at, sir. Oh, boy. <laughs> that was super difficult. Um, <laughs> you know, it's... We, we don't it, invite people on here for easy questions, man. All right? Yeah, no, I don't know yeah. if you've we, uh, ever we listened to... We hit the to hard art. questions where we say, hey, what made you laugh in this? Yeah. <laughs> Right, exactly. Well, I'll tell you, I guess probably one of the ones that I, I found that was, I don't know, it was, I guess it was lighthearted banter in a moment of crisis. But on page 48, there's uh, some back and forth with the kids as they're uh, fighting some of the goons. They turn around and they're like, these guys don't seem to get it, Mass Master. And then, of course, he drops the, the let's tutor them light speed. And I thought, well, you know what? There's time for some of that good old cheesy bake in a comic and a story like this. I'm for that. So I was really <laughs> amused by it. Thought it was a good place to kind of bring up the levity a little bit of, of the overall tone. But uh, yeah, that was a cute little, uh, a cute panel. Yeah, it is uh, just in the middle of this dark thing. These two are cracking jokes as, you know, they find some people who have been abused and who are emaciated and they got some friends that have been kidnapped. And these two are cracking jokes. <laughs> Spidey-Man, they ain't. But you know what? That's okay. Right. They're young kids. Whatever they have to do to cope. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think they were trying to go for that to be a big hero moment. But it's just kind of, read the room, man. Read the room. Read the room. <laughs> right. Jeff, what do you find to be funny? My joke backup one is on page 19. And I call it, Throwing the Horns. And this is after uh, Cloak had been fighting the Chicken Hawk uh, gang members and he swallowed them up and he just spat them back out onto the street. And a car has gone driving by and has like run into a couple, you know, run into the kids, uh, not the kids, the Chicken Hawk gang members. And Cloak is laughing his head off about it. And the lady is so metal that was driving that car that she's puts her hands out the window and is throwing up the horns. As if we all know, the horns are those, you know, that that thumb and middle finger up in the air because that's that's the horns for being metal it's not the horns she's flipping them off so uh i just thought that was so funny just to just to see that because it can be kind of you know the art on that's fuzzy enough where you're like yeah that okay yeah she's throwing up the horns that's a little funny no it's not no it's not <laughs> i completely missed that I did as going well. Through here. I, I did not <laughs> see that. Thank you very much for bringing that to my attention. That is a riot. Well, I, I, had, I, I was stuck on this one because <laughs> coming out from an, you know, coming down an alleyway within the background, you see topless and, you know, some other things going on. And, and here comes this car comes screaming down drawn by this lady or driven by this lady. Who's she seems a little surprised. And then she runs over somebody, and as she's leaving, she throws up a hand sign like, see ya! Uh, yeah, I was stuck on that, and I missed yeah. actually the hand signal that she was... Nice. It, it, nice. It's tiny, and it's in the you know the upper right-hand corner of you know the bottom left-hand panel. It, it's tiny. It's not what you see. I mean, half that pa half that panel is dominated by cloak 
uh, laughing at what happened to uh, these two gang members getting, you know, drained of some energy and hit by a car. So it, it is a tiny, 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 tiny little part of that panel. Well, I am going to go ahead and bring your attention to page 11. And I call this one the nightmare of Power Pack because there is nothing so funny as a little child going to sleep at night and dreaming a nightmare that absolutely scares her so much that she has to wake up and go sleep with her parents. And what is that nightmare that she has? Well, it is the origin story of how her and her siblings got their powers and everything they've done since. So uh, her nightmare is Power Pack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you, K through 12? Yeah. <laughs> her nightmare is her life. And mm. that made me chuckle. I'm like, <laughs> wow, 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 wow. Bummer, kid. <laughs> All right. Back to you, sir. Colin, what do you got as far as another funny one? Yeah. Um, as far as like a joke, page 20, I don't know if it's uh, really technically a joke, but uh, when the um, kids are turning the corner helping Dagger, who is almost unconscious, uh, they run into, it's a lady <laughs> of the night, and she is uh, taking a look at what's going on, and she's like, hey, you kids in trouble? And Marjorie's like, our friend's been hurt. And then it gets this, so they the panel next, they blacken out everything behind the lady of the night's head and do this weird under her chin lighting. And she, it, it, it's almost like it's like you would expect her to say this next line like this, the way she's dressed, I ain't surprised, <laughs> right? Like it's very foreboding and the panel is like, and I'm like, is, she, is that a quip? or some sort of existential warning. I'm not sure why that panel is so dark and so intense, but I get it. I get the message, even though it's kind of dated now. Watch what you wear, or you're going to get the scary lady of the night face there with the backlighting. So anyway. And, and they're, she they're is one to talk. <laughs> yeah. The fur, the fur arm collars uh, are, are something else. Uh, super nice. All right. Up. Uh, Back to you, Jeff. Make me laugh with your choice. My top funny one is on page 31, and I call it Free Baby. And this is when uh, Dagger has woken up in Shelter Society Place, and Juan and Marjorie are giving her a tour around it. And uh, she just happens to see, you know, they walk into a room and it's got a lady and her baby because, you know, it's just like they provide uh, help to, you know, unwed mothers or whatever that are, you know, in off the street as well. And uh, Dagger just runs up to this lady, grabs the baby out of her arms, and is all, you know, he's so cute. But it's just like, I know I have a, chi a young child, and I would super appreciate just random people walking into my room and grabbing my child from my hands. So <laughs> I just thought that was funny just to have somebody just run in and just, you just, you just totally stole my child. <laughs> right. Awkward. <laughs> I know the lady isn't even like. At no point is she all. She just seems happy to have her, her baby stolen by somebody without pants. So my funny one, <laughs> my funny one, is on page fourteen. And speaking about people you do not want to steal or touch or even look at your child, I would like to turn your attention to somebody who I call Mr. Trustworthy. Because um, this is a perfect example of who should not be brought in 
and, and even looking at babies. And this would be Mr. Pigtail Boy himself. This guy's got a set of pigtails that goes down almost to his belly button, <laughs> one on either side, and they're braided. He's got a feather coming out of his, his hair. He's got sunglasses on at 2 a.m. in the morning. He's wearing a, a muscle shirt that's tied on at the top. It's hanging very low, so we can see all of his chiseled muscles. And uh, it says chicken hawks because he is one of the chicken hawks. I guess their leader, sure. Come on, kids. Trust me. Come in the alley. It's all good. It's all good. Would you trust this gentleman? No. <laughs> I, I would trust him to not have my best interests at heart. Okay. There you go, then. <laughs> yeah, this guy, he is just so ridiculous. I mean, this is one of those people that I you see walking down the street, you're like, mm, you know what? Other side of the street for me. Yeah. Because we ain't at no Ren Fair. <laughs> no. <laughs> It was just like it was just like a guy just running with knives, just stabbing people, and they're like, "We're gonna go over there." That's got the guy wearing the uh, the the leggings that are all rainbow colored. Uh, he's he's really ripped and everything. He's wearing the unicorn head on top of his head and walking <laughs> with that mean look. You you've seen yeah. the picture online. <laughs> all right, let's go ahead and talk about the best art in this book. What is your guys' best art that you have seen in this book? Let's go ahead and go with Jeff first. Hit me with it. What do you find good? My backup best art is on page 16, and I call it The Sudden Appearance of Light and Dark. And this is the bottom central panel, and it is uh, when Marjorie and Juan are kind of getting beat up and taken by the chicken hawks in the alley, and Cloak and Dagger appear. And everything is just desaturated all around it, except for the center, which has a very vibrantly colored dagger who is also kind of illuminating cloak so the only people that have any coloration to him is cloak and dagger and just the way that looks is just so cool it's kind of you know cloak is menacing and large in the background and dagger is you know appearing almost like you know floating out from him with her kind of little starburst light moon might you know lights and stars and moon patterns around her and it just looks amazing Nice one. That is that is really well done. I do like it. And that is one of your favorite kind with the, like, you know, two-tone color type of a thing going on yeah. there. So very, very nice. All right. Uh, how about you, Mr. WCPE guy? Uh, my backup good art is going to be on page 45. It's a full page with cadaver. And I just love it because it's just, it's slimy. And as you look at it from the top left and let your eyes kind of come down the page so it almost looks like right the tunnel above the chair or the seating area behind cadaver it all kind of runs forward and cadavers pushing himself forward but as we noted earlier it's not really like a push up but more like a push out like he's slight just sliming out of that seated area towards dagger and the rest and it's it's just disgusting and you can see that the yellow instruments and the the hoses and everything coming from his chest and connecting to his brain and everything it's just it really captures a lot of forward momentum and it's just disgusting it reminds me sort of that uh, scene from dune where the ah. The guy is sliming forward. And I just think that they do a great job of just doing a, a complete picture of, of cadaver and, and all of its gross, obese disgustingness. And I just, it really, it took me back and I, I just thought it really exemplified how slovenly 
and disgusting this character is. Yeah, and and I think we get a real good understanding about the character design itself. Like you were saying, it's got all the tubes, it's got all the the gears, um, kind of his exoskeleton that's helping him hold up his weight, but all the tubes and everything that are kind of running into the various parts of his body and putting in or pulling out liquid in depending upon, I guess, uh, the, the hypodermic needles that he's got for his fingers that he uses to insert and suck out the life force of people. This dude is gross upon gross, and it's a frightening and horrific scene of a character that is terrible. I don't really know if I like this character at all, but I mean, I like the character design, but I hate the character. Right. So, yeah, very, very nice choice. My backup one is on page 22, and it is another full-page spread. And this is what I call, that ain't no Batman. Uh, what we got going on here is we got Cloak, and he is in the foreground. He's kind of landing on top of a gargoyle, and he's got his cloak all tattered out and behind him. Very reminiscent of one Mr. Bruce Wayne, if you will. But he's standing on this gargoyle and behind him in this yellow two-tone kind of way is the rest of the skyscrapers of the city. And kind of intermixed in the background there is four pictures. We got at the very top, we got um, Father Francis uh, Delgado. And so he's kind of thinking about him. And then you've got another little panel of Spider-Man. You've got another panel of the New Mutants. And you've got the Power Pack. And each of those panels is kind of running along the Y and X axis of the streets of the city. So they're kind of parallel right with different sides of the buildings, which is another kind of cool effect. And another effect is that you've got Cloak. Not only is he in the foreground, but he's also way in the background in a tiny little figure. And then he's on another building, kind of a little closer up. And then he's on another building, a little closer up. So you're seeing him teleporting across on all the different buildings as he's thinking all this stuff. There's a lot going on with this page, and I thought it was very, very cool. Agreed. No, that's a great piece of art. This was on my list. Yeah. It is very, very attractive. It is very neat. And I love the way that, yeah, his uh, kind of thought bubbles are little Polaroids, like laying against building faces. I just thought that was really, really cool. Back to you, Jeff, for your top best art piece for this book. My top favorite art is on page 25, and I call it Dream Dancer. And this is after... Uh, Dream Dancer. Yeah, this is one dagger. <laughs> Dream Dancer. You don't have to have superpowers. Yeah, this is a... When uh, Dagger has been admitted into the Shelter Society and she's in a hospital bed and she's uh, dreaming and what she's dreaming of is her and her Dagger persona just dancing and light and stars and moon shapes are all around her and kind of Cloak's dark arms are reaching up for her. But it's done inverse colorations where the page that the art is on is like, like a midnight blue, very dark coloration and all of Dagger is done in uh, white for her you know outline drawings and i just thought it's kind of blueprinty in its appearance but i just thought that just looked gorgeous and i just love seeing all the motion of dagger it's I like almost agree. it was almost done like a character study of just like okay i need a model and i just need to do life drawings of them in different different positions and this is life drawings of a dancer and i just thought it was glorious looking 
I agree, it's beautiful, very beautiful. What is it about Katie and Dagger that when they dream, they dream of themselves? I think that's just a little bit of egotism. A little bit. All right, Katie, actually, when she woke up, she was dreaming of dancing, going, oh, dance, you, dream, you dance so beautifully. All right. Oh. When, when Cloak appeared. So a little psychic link thing there Katie's going on. Like Maybe this was uh, a way of uh, Dagger kind of putting out the little distress call to her psychic link buddy katie maybe which is maybe. i don't think they've ever covered anywhere no, and is no, a uh, go nowhere not, story but would be kind of fun thing. no God. yeah <laughs> all right back to you colin what is your best piece of art i think i think i i downsized a little bit i went back to page 32 panel four and much like jeff uh, sometimes i'm easily amused i love a two-tone drawing and the fourth panel they're talking about cloak and daggers sort of action sequence together that to me like i love that entire panel i love the composition there's action and motion by both cloak and dagger i also like i'm going to admit up front right like the daggers outfit as it's designed has a high cheese factor you know, for a 13-year-old boy, <laughs> that was amazing. The fact that they rotated her torso and, you know, really focused really on her sending the, the light daggers out and not focusing on her decollete, cleavage, and belly button. I appreciate that. And I just think that that's a pure action panel. Mm-hmm. And I, I really love it. Uh, for my final one, I'm going to go ahead and go on to page 39 and... I'm going to call this freak out because this is all about cloak freaking out. And this is another kind of full page spread. And he's talking to the kids and he's saying, I cannot survive much longer without her light. And he's doing the all drama kid all day long. And the, the rest of the power kids are sitting in front, just kind of like, Oh, Holy cow. And you know, Katie is reaching back and accidentally uh, dis- disintegrating the ever-present roof cement kind of stuff that's there. Yeah, and, every roof has uh, just barrels of tar buckets and, and roof well, cement yeah. on them in Power Pack. Uh, that, that's a staple in New York. You can't actually own a building unless you have that stuff on the roof. It's it's actually okay. law. <laughs> it's an OSHA law. It's OSHA law, yeah. <laughs> um, it's really kind of cool, though, because you, know, you see him kind of freaking out, and he's got all these kind of like red swirls inside his coat cloak because you know the shadowy realm because he's just not being able to handle it right now and i just i was really struck by this because i think that the kids are all drawn really well it's an interesting forest perspective and it's just very ah in there and apparently you guys absolutely agree with me so that's absolutely yes 100 100 percent agree with you on that no uh, especially with the just kind of the the red swirling within cloak when he's talking about his hunger and i can see that since he does feed off of kind of life essence Mm -hmm. and so you kind of have that vamp and they even say wow he's like a vampire so having that kind of red swirling in there kind of representative blood kind of of the you know hunger color it, it it works really well yeah yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. I'm glad you agree with me because if you didn't, I would have to call you naive and innocent in your thinking. Because guess what? It is time for rubber and glue moments. And this is the point in time where we, much like the characters in this book, throw insults at each other because we are nothing but children. <laughs> so, as I was saying on page two, we have the lovely phrase naive and innocent. And who in this book is calling somebody naive and innocent? Why, that would be Marjorie's dad. And that is how nice of a guy he is that he is just sitting here 
tearing his daughter down, telling her she's pretty much worthless, that they've held her sheltered. And then he says, you're naive and innocent. That is a good, good dad. And when I say that, I mean, he's the not. opposite. Because <laughs> he's, yeah. uh, it, to, to be very precise, uh, you may be a bright as a star baby, but you're still naive, innocent. Thanks, dad. <laughs> Thanks. Hit me with it. I can take it, Colin. I can take it. Hit me with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that Marjorie's dad plays a couple different roles within the book. Uh, not only does he help kind of set the tone for what a jerk he is to her as the story opens, but because of his constant and relentless verbal abuse, when she goes uh, and manages to go find a place to, to hang out once they get to the city, she is convinced that she needs to call home to let her her folks know that she's okay and the player plays herself because she's getting ready to dial the phone and she imagines her dad yelling at her couldn't make it on your own for even one night huh i thought so again like that's insulting even if it wasn't said to yourself if that's just your voice inside your own head but like for him she obviously is thinking this because he has said this repeatedly to her and mm -hmm. so i just i felt bad i felt like that's how a very immature father would react to his daughter checking in to let him know that she's in a giant city and still safe and it made me feel kind of bad for her so i thought that was kind of a cheap shot i think that you are completely correct on that and i need to write that phrase down because uh you know being a father of a daughter i need to remember to tell my daughter that sometime too <laughs> yes absolutely <laughs> no no on the no that goes on the not list don't right, say that right. that's a do not use list i right. get those two confused so hard to keep track so of hard to keep track what proper parenting is anymore yes right? uh jeff <laughs> proper parent number three come on hit us man hit us what do you got my backup one is on page 20 and this is when uh juan and marjorie are carrying the uh injured dagger down the street and they run into the streetwalker cullen talked about this for his uh backup funny art but yeah it was when the, the you know, the streetwalker sees the kids hauling the girl and, you know, it's just like, hey, you kids in trouble. Oh, our friend's been hurt. And just this is what this streetwalker who's wearing comparable outfit is just kind of saying, you know, the way she's dressed, I ain't surprised. Yeah. So I see that as some pretty good shade. I mean, in a terrible way, because it's just like, yeah, look how she's dressed. She deserves it. I'm not agreeing with that. That is terrible and wrong. But I thought that was I thought that was a good insult for a. Uh, the the lady of the evening to be doing to a superhero we so, yeah. don't con we don't condone that but at the same time well played with the shade yeah. we we acknowledge yes. right we, we hate the game but we're not hating the we're player not, on this one yeah, <laughs> for sure all right uh that brings it back around to me and i am gonna go ahead and i am going to i'm gonna give alex some love i am not one to give alex much love but i'm gonna give him just a tiny little bit of love in this book and that is because they're working out a plan on how they can infiltrate the safe haven place. And they've already poo-pooed Jack's one idea. They, they poo-pooed Jack's idea because Jack wanted to just bust in. They're like, no, no, we can't do that. Uh, Julie's idea is, is, hey, let's just go in and say that we are runaways. Jack comes back saying, you know, hey, we look too clean and content and contented for that. But I have an idea. Julie comes back with, well, I can't wait to hear it. And Alex, be generous, Julie. It is possible Jack could have one idea this week. Ow! <laughs> Ow! Nice! Yeah. 
<laughs> nice, nice, nice. Hit it. Hit it. Yeah. No, that was super tight. That's that's a line that only an older sibling can deliver. Yes. Yes. And it's got that extra spice on the backside. <sighs> yeah, I had uh, I had one more rubber and glue moment. This is near the beginning where uh, they have decided that uh, perhaps Hansel and Gretel is not necessarily the best <laughs> nighttime pre-bed story. And Julie's like, hey, some kids do get abandoned. Thanks, Julie. I'm reading an article about this safe refuge shelter and Jack being Jack right? Brings it home. You're always reading, Julie. Somebody should abandon you, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, that is, and well, you know, the first one was a good line an older sibling can do. That is the expected line of what a younger sibling younger would sibling, say. Yeah. That is a good, good one you had there, Colin. I think we have one more, one more person needs to say some kind of silly, silly, silly insult, and then we can move on to something else. But you know, I don't know if it's that important. We'll have to see. Jeff, what's your last one? All right, my last one is on page 12, and this is when uh, Juan and Marjorie have just gotten into New York, and they're kind of walking around at 2 in the morning, and one of the things they see is a a street preacher on the street who's just yelling about, lust in your hearts and lose the kingdom of heaven, repent. And Marjorie's like, what's his problem? And I just love Juan's response to this because he says, guess he doesn't like the local culture. (laughs) So (laughs) I just thought that was uh, great because it's just kind of like, this is New York at two in the morning. Right. And just a lot of stuff's going on where it's just like, if you don't want to be out in this, you should just be home at this stage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. This is not a mid afternoon sort of thing. I don't know. Back in the, back in the eighties in the middle of New York city, I think it kind That's of, that's a good actually. point. <laughs> yeah. Some, uh, Ed Koch era, New York city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. for sure. All right. But we need to get off the mean streets of New York and back into the nice, comfy and sedate place of ranking children, whether they're good or bad. Because yes. that's that's how we operate in this little neck of the woods. <laughs> so we want to go ahead and say who's the best and who is the worst child. And like Jeff always reminds me, we start with the worst child. Let's go ahead and go first. Who wants to throw a worst child against the wall and see if they stick? <laughs> Which is what detention is. <laughs> What's detention? You just throw children against a wall and see if they stick. If they don't. I don't know if they stay longer or something. You only get to go home when you stick. Hey, you punish your children your way. I'll punish them my way. My child okay. just happens to wear Velcro. So, hey, you know. She's smart for your house. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> my detention kid is Alex. Alex. Why would you choose Alex? He just kind of, he didn't do much. Uh, you know, I went through and I was ranking everybody of like, oh, okay. You know, what positive things did everybody do? And I think Alex had one, and I can't even remember what it was right now, but it was just along lines where... Alex both didn't really do anything, and he was a little snarky. He was very poo-poo about stuff. We're just like, hey, we should go to this. Eh, do we need to? Eh, what about this? Eh. But he just, he didn't really do anything. So it wasn't that he was bad so much as he just didn't contribute to the greater whole. So that's why he's my detention child. So uh, you went with a quantifiable response to uh, whether or not a child is good or bad. I... I I went more with a gut feeling, and I said, well, Jack. Jack was horrible. Jack was terrible. He had literally one good idea, as Alex pointed out, and that idea ended up being a bust and was a horrible, horrible idea. I thought it was a great idea. It just didn't work out for him. 
a horrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> he ruined bedtime for his siblings with his smart aleck attitude, and mm-hmm. uh, and, and all in all, he was just a, he was being a jerkier Jack than normal. Colin, okay. do you agree with me or not? I absolutely agree with you, but that wouldn't be my pick for the detention child. Really, I'm going to circle back around to this one pivotal panel on page 10 where uh, Jack, to your credit, is making a point for earning your detention award for reminding Julie that someone should abandon her. Alex turns around in that same panel after Mrs. Powers has already taken care of the parenting of Jack and has to toss in swift move, dude. Now Katie's really crying. And, and I just, as a parent who at times has multiple children in the home at any given time, right? There's an incident As the parent, you move in to do whatever corrective parenting, if necessary, needs to be done, and then you de-escalate. And just as sure as you turn your back, somebody (laughs) lights the powder with some half-thought-out remark, and here we go again. And now I've got to bring the whole house back down again. So anyway, uh, not a fan of uh, Alex sniping from the grassy knoll as a parent. (laughs) It's like we were doing one timeout. Now everybody's in timeout. Right. I said everybody's in timeout. Right. I'll give that one to you, although I think you guys are both way off the mark on that one. <laughs> but let's see if you guys can, you know, redeem yourselves with the best child. Uh, Colin, who do you have as the best child? Who gets that star? Oh, boy. I'm going to go ahead and give it immediately to Katie. Okay. Because uh, she had admitted to everyone in, early in the story about some of her fears, uh, and, um, her concern when she was in bed alone in the dark. She she wanted to go sleep with her parents and everything. And just talking about, as you had mentioned earlier, her nightmare of apparently becoming part of Power Pack. But towards the end of the story, she has been given an opportunity to assist Cloak with his hunger. And she volunteers some of her light power in order to satiate his needs while everything else is going around, which I felt was very brave of her given what she had shared, you know, previously in the story and what was going on currently. So I think she's amazing and uh, thought she really stepped forward and, and defined what a hero looks like on that particular page. No, it's a good choice. Katie. Yeah. Katie did some good stuff. She did some impetuous stuff, but she did some good stuff too. I kind of got it as more of creepy when she was offering her life force to cloak, but yeah, I don't know. Anyways. <laughs> I saw it as uh, caring and touching. I saw that as uh, a kid. It's like, hey, you're, you're hungry. I have some sandwich. Have have my sandwich. I was saving it for myself, but here, you have it. I have no problem with the sandwich. I just, I, I, I'm yeah. a little more stingy with my life force. I played I played too many video games before. <laughs> <laughs> Got to keep that 100% health. Can't have right. it dipping down. Got to needs- keep it green. Can't be uh, yellow, orange, or red. Elf needs food badly. <laughs> Elf needs food badly. So uh, who do you have as your best one, Jeff? My best one is Julie. All right. As we had kind of discussed, a lot of the power kids, they didn't, they were there, but they didn't do a lot of stuff. So it's kind of hard to say, you know, real big hero moments of things that they did. So she had read up on Safe Refuge. So she knew about it. She came up with the uh, idea that, hey, wait a minute, Cloak, you said that you saw Dagger and two runaways. Well, I just read about a runaway place. Maybe they're at Safe Refuge. She was also, you know, so it was like, hey, that's great. So she, oh, I'm drawing blanks on some of the stuff, but she just did enough stuff where it was just like, she was good support. She was good. She moved stories on. She, you know, she was like, wait, I know of, 
I know of a place that uh, they might be. Wait, I know about this. Wait, we need to, Katie's running in. We need to go back her, you know, into the uh, safe refuge when the police show up and everything. We need to back her play because, because that's what we do. So I, just, I thought Julie was just, she was really good support and she came up with the ideas to move things forward. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I had the same thing for Julie. I thought that she was, she had some good ideas. She had some logical thinking. I really enjoyed her in this, in this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of the issue, we need to rank it, guys. We need to take this issue and we need to put it up against all of the other issues of Power Pack. And there are a lot of them. I mean, we are talking, we are in the you know, 20s, 30s, 40s. We are up to 54. 54, that's right. At the very top of this list, we have one that I don't think is going to come down anytime soon. First issue of Power Pack's entry into the Inferno saga, and that's John Bogdanov's issue of Power Pack number 42, Revenge of the Boogeyman. You know, coming down the list a little bit, back around number 25, we've got Power Pack number 5, Homecoming, that's where the kids come back to Earth. Around issue number, around ranking number 40, I should say, we've got Power Pack 38, that's Lobo Beep, Has Lost Her Sheep, that's the uh, first issue that Juliana Jones wrote. All the way down at the very bottom of the list, we have X-Factor Annual number two, Man on the Moon. Not our favorite book. We did not like it so much. I'm going to go ahead and just make this conversation go a little bit forward and say, guys, 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 help me out here. Do we have a new bottom contender? I'm going to say yes. (laughs) I'm going to go ahead. um, Now, I don't have uh, the deep knowledge that you guys do, but I trust when we have spent these hours together discussing this book, your reaction and really objective opinion about this particular graphic novel, I think is, is on the mark. I get it. It's a kind of, as we've mentioned before, kind of a, a creature at a time compared to the timeline uh, of the book and, and everything. So I'll put it this way. I would not waste your life energy trying to make an argument for it to not <laughs> be the bottom. Thank you. I appreciate You're welcome. that. Absolutely. I, I would say that X-Factor Annual Number 2 has a part of the story that deals with Power Pack being there and doing something. This issue that we've been talking about has Power Pack being there and doing something. Um, neither one is entirely about Power Pack at all. The question for Jeff and I is going to really be about whether or not we want... We, we, which one we like more, which one we, we think is a better book overall, whether it's going to be the X-Factor Annual or it's going to be this one, which one we, we could actually read again and, and, and see again. I, I'm leaning a little bit towards towards Colin, but I want to hear Jeff's opinion. Where do you find this one, Jeff? Uh, I act, I think that this had more uh, Power Pack stuff in it story-wise than the uh, Man in the Moon one did. Uh, also, just four stories. I think, personally, I would be more apt to reread this one again than the X-Factor Annual one. The X-Factor Annual one had a lot of issues going on with it mm-hmm. and just enough things in it where, where this one had uh, things where it's just like, ah, kind of, you know, it's some of the characters and kind of story like, well, how did they and why did they? You know, it had some kind of questionable kind of things in it. I like the way that they wrote the characters and everything. The progression of the story were kind of choices that they made and everything. Although they would constantly make bad choices, it still were better choices. Big problems that I had with the X-Factor one were choices that characters, they would just see something and blindly disregard it. Like Medusa in that story Mm. would just kill me with just like her forced ignorance. Uh, The X-Factor annual one 
angered me, mm. where this one just kind of disappointed me a little bit. So I would I would keep X Factor at the bottom, and I would you know prefer this one to be above it somewhere. Uh, is it better than the Madcap storyline book that we read? Because that's the next one up. That's the second to last. I would story. say no because I still have a bit of a nostalgia for that one, and I okay. think that it's. I think it's still in its heart a fun story. There ain't nothing fun about this story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So this. The, so that. So the Madcap one has a little bit of lightheartedness yes. and a little bit of joy, where this one really doesn't. The 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 happiest moment is when two runaway kids abandon a third runaway child to whatever fate mets out to her. Yeah. But so, that's okay. She has amnesia. She wouldn't know any better anyway. I'm okay with I'm I'm okay with this one being number 54 and being second from the last with X Factor Angle 2. When it comes down to it, I'm probably not going to read either of these two again. Yeah, to be honest, yeah. That's fine. You know what I will probably revisit again though is this beer Gentlemen, lovely nectar of the gods called Stormbreaker Brewing Opicus Oatmeal Stout. We all have just a tiny little bit left in our glasses here. Take a sip of that. Tell me what you think of it because I've, I've been enjoying this. I've liked this tonight. This is the kind of beer that a lot of beers that we'll have really, my opinion of it changes over the hour because it warms up and kind of you know the, the flavor profile varies or my tongue varies on it or how I'm tasting it. I call this, this is a very steady state yes. beer. The flavor that you get at the beginning of it is basically the exact same thing that you're getting at the end of it. So cold, a little bit of room temperature. It's just a really good beer. It's not crazy fancy. It doesn't have any gimmicks going on with it. It has, you know, that roasted, almost burnt, but not quite flavor of like the malts and the coffee and everything that mm -hmm. you go, this could be overpowering, but it's not. It's just, it's just a solid good beer. Yes, I agree. I would absolutely agree with that. It's one of those ones where when you finish it, it's not a refreshing beer. It's a satisfying beer. And uh, this is really, uh, it's been a, a great, great drink to have while we're discussing this. And uh, much like the book, dark and impenetrable. <laughs> <laughs> well put. No more walking around this issue then. Let's go ahead and rank this beer. I'm throwing out 4.5 as a starting. What do you guys feel about that? I'll match it. Yeah, I'll go three for three. Yeah, hey, we're all in. We're all in on this one. I well, now that we've had our final thoughts on a beer, let's have a final thoughts from a kid who happens to be related to Rick that likes to read the stories with us and tell us what her thoughts are. So, Rick and Carrie, could you grace us with your presence for a little bit? And after showing the book to my daughter and giving her an opportunity to read it, she determined that it was not for her. She gave it a try, but she found it to be too violent. So we're not going to actually be talking to her this time around. But don't worry, she'll be back for the regular series. Well, thank you, Rick and not Carrie, for your insights. Shout out time. We like to recognize the listeners that take the time to write in or leave us a review. And this one is about episode 59, where Zach from Battle of the Atom showed up to talk to us about the Marvel Age Annuals 1 through 3 and The Job from Girl Comics. Al Sedano and Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. Charles Gears. Charlie Rose. Chris at BTO Bat Books. The Cutest Villager. Gary Key. Gibson Gray. Green Lantern HG. Hoover Jeremiah and the Four Million Years Later podcast. Jared Sinatra. Jeremy Daw. Limex 7. Mark Rogers. Nicholas Fromm and the Comic Reflections podcast. Sean and the Secret Wars and Beyond podcast. Somewhat abnormal. Tim Price, the Podcrusher. Waffles. 
Zach and Adam from the Battle of the Atom podcast and Xavier Files website. Colin, uh, before we go, could you please tell us where people can find you on the series of tubes that we call the internets? I'd love to. Thanks. Uh, you can start off by finding us at wcpever.com. You can also find us on all the social media channels. Check in with us. Send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, John, Jerry, and I uh, love to make new friends from all over the country and world. So please check us out. Be sure to check out the other shows that we are on. Our junior agent submissions on the MI6 Rookie Agents episodes of On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast and monthly Monday movie muckabouts on the Long Box Crusade Podcast Network. And we have some merchandise available on Redbubble. Go to redbubble.com and search for Unpacking the Power of Power Pack. Jeff and Rick Present is a bi-weekly self-produced podcast recording in front of a live studio audience of a child that has just come down and attacked Jeff in Portland, Oregon. If you would like to interact with us through the magic of the internet, you can do so through Twitter at Jeff and Rick Present, our Facebook page, Jeff and Rick Present, our email address, Jeff and Rick Present, all one word at gmail.com, or at our website, Jeff and Rick Present.wordpress.com. Also, our YouTube channel is Jeff and Rick Present. And if you would like to help support our show, we are on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com, Jeff and Rick Present, all one word. We are a proud supporter of the Hero Initiative, and we will be donating 10% of our Patreon donations to this great cause. We encourage everyone to give what they can to this worthwhile organization that helps the creators who provide us with such great content. Go to HeroInitiative.org to find out more. Please rate and review us wherever you can. Tell your friends about us or share your love for us on social media. And as always, we want to thank the powerful people in our packs. My wife, Cindy, and our daughter, Carrie. My fiance, Hillary, and our daughter, Aurora. Amanda, Ainsley, Lachlan, and Lillian. And I couldn't do any of it without my Mrs. Power, Megan. We, we love, love you. you. Until next time. Costumes off. Our theme music is 80s action. Also featured in this episode is Disquiet. All music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com and is licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution for a license. Welcome to science. I did my thesis and the board that was doing it was like, you could have called us and we could have told you how those words were pronounced. I'm like, oh, <laughs> that hurts. But I could have, but I didn't because I so, chose my own pronunciation. Thud. Or maybe aliens, robots, and former employer thing. Uh, That's right. Right from the belly. Mm. Bring it up from the depths mm. like Godzilla. Yeah, Rise it up pe- 90 stories high. And, and beer. Mm, right there. Mm-hmm. Mm. You commit to those. That's what you do. You commit. You got to burp. You don't go, <coughs> oh, pardon me. You go, like, exactly. I want to see water rumbling, vibrating, like, just I, I think, like a I think there's also a little bit of the tuna sandwich from lunch, too. Mm. Oh, gross. Mm. I'm glad that we're uh, doing this. Uh, yeah, I'm glad we're zooming this now. The hope for some shelter in the form of a cheap hotel is interrupted by a character of a guy with a tank top, braided piglets, and sunglasses promising food and safety. Piglets or pigtails? You're right. Braided pig- Because braided piglets is kind, kind of, of awesome, and yet also <laughs> terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Thud. Dagger tosses out a couple of her light... <clears throat> I think you Dagger messed that up. A- I think I messed that up. Thud. Speaking of these... Good and bad siblings ripping on each other. Let's just move this uh, party on over to the stars in detention. We I got my identify- last one. Oh, I am horrible, horrible, horrible. Okay.